So I'm here at Portland Retro Game Gaming Expo uh, with Frank Cifaldi, Retronauts alumnus. Hello. And uh, it's the eve of the NES's 30th anniversary uh, in America. It is. And uh, I can think of no other person more appropriate to talk <laughs> to uh, besides, like, Masayuki Uemura or someone, you know, Gil, Gil Tilden, maybe, I don't know. Sure, Gail Howard. Uh, yeah. Uh, Arakawa. But lacking access to them, we'll sure. go with Frank. I've talked to some of those people. I have. Well, Uemura, that's it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I guess between the two of us, we've we've spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, momentous occasion in history. We we have, and and frankly, I don't exactly know why. <laughs> you know, like like I know that system's important to us, but but why are we so compelled by the way it was initially sold? That's actually a good question. I guess because it is this sort of very unique time in uh, yeah. sort of the development of video games, um, you know, it, it represents a couple of landmarks. For one thing, you know, obviously there had been the whole uh, market crash with console games in the U.S., and see, even even they're happy about the NES's launch. No, they just like the market crash. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm happy about that, too. <laughs> the uh, games are really cheap after the crash. So. That, was, that was my memory, yes. <laughs> like, oh, I can get all these ColecoVision games for $5. Uh, but no, you know, it, it helped resuscitate a uh, market that could have kind of foundered and vanished. I mean, you know, well, you, that, saw, you saw... That's why it's so fascinating, right? It's you, such you a good saw, story. You saw in the UK, like, there was no console market until the 16-bit era because they had cheap, inexpensive, uh, right. easy access PCs that they could play on, and so that became the market over there. That could have been the case here, but the NES helped kind of push us away from that and, and really strengthened the console market here. It's also significant in that it was... The first uh, Japanese console mm -hmm. to have a significant, foreign console really, to have a significant presence in the U.S. And that really, I think, shaped the direction that games took uh, for years after and uh, kind of the, just the nature of the global games industry as a whole. Right, but, but I think more than that, it's just kind of a good story. You know, like, like it's, it's something that we've known since Game Over was published in 1993, you know, about the, the crazy Nintendo strike force that, that, that air landed, you know, on, on New York and, and forced uh, game systems into FAO Schwartz against their will and, 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 and brought back the video game industry through, through sheer determination, right? I mean, it's, it's a narrative that I think we all enjoy and kind of want to know more about. Yeah, I think maybe you over-dramatized over it just a bit. <laughs> they forced but it in there. They, they, they pushed it. <laughs> You're going to take these games whether you like them or not. But but no, it is interesting. And uh, Actually, interesting side note about uh, getting it in FAO Schwartz. I don't think a lot of people know this. Uh, so um, I don't know who the sales rep was for Nintendo, but when they brought it to FAO Schwartz, which, by the way, we might be getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but FAO Schwartz was kind of the premier place where it debuted. It was the big toy store in right. New York. Um the when, when Nintendo sales rep uh, brought a sample to FAO Schwartz, uh, they the they they gave it to this younger kid who was working there uh, to kind of bring it home and evaluate. So he did, and he came back and he's like, "Guys, we got to sell that." Uh, that guy is Joe Quesada. Oh yeah, who is like the no chief creative something at Marvel Comics yeah, he was now? Yeah, for a while. I don't yeah. know what he is now. Yeah. That's crazy. I had no idea yeah. there was that connection. That's a weird connection to have. You, you'd think that there would have been better X-Men and Silver Surfer games on NES. <laughs> I, I did ask him if he still had that Nintendo, and he's like, no, I lost it to an X. Oh. 
Imagine that breakups. That, what was the serial number of that one? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I went to uh, Masayuki Uemura, the designer of the NES yep. uh, hardware, the Famicom hardware. I went to his 30th anniversary presentation at New York University's Game, uh, Game Center a few days ago, and uh, I had the opportunity to talk to him and interview him, and I asked him what was the hardest part of bringing the NES to America, bringing the Famicom to America, and he said it was getting it past the market's resistance. That's not just you know something we've turned into this interesting story. Like, yeah. legitimately, it was a huge challenge for them, and they spent a lot of time researching the market and evaluating things, and really kind of, uh, he said they, they basically brought the system over here despite pretty much everyone telling them, no, it's not, it's not a good idea. Right. Like, all the marketing representatives and retail buyers were saying, this market is dead, this is stupid, no one's going to buy video games, right. this would be pointless, it's over, it's gone. I mean, you're talking to buyers for stores who, uh, you know, in, in, in some cases at least, like probably, probably lost their previous jobs over investing too much in buying video game product that they had to blow out at a loss. You know, this was, it was a big hit for retailers, and, and uh, the, the brilliance of Nintendo was recognizing that uh, it's, the players didn't go away. You know, they just—it was just an oversaturated market. Right, they still wanted more. Yeah, Uemura said that part of um, what drove them to go ahead and make the push anyway was the fact that, you know, they had the Versus system in arcades and games like, uh, you know, Hogan's Alley and baseball and tennis were really successful. Like those arcade machines were far more successful in America than in Japan. Like the the idea of the Versus concept, you know, going head to head against people. Uh, like really caught on with Americans, whereas he said, you know, Japan, competition's not such a big thing, so these these systems didn't really do anything. But in America, they were successful, and that made them say, well, obviously, these games are enjoyable. We just have to figure out how to get them to people beyond the arcades. Yeah, I, I actually uh, had never considered the, the success of the, the versus systems as, as contributing uh, to the launch of the NES. I think it's really cool. I think it's also... You know, if, if we're going into like trying to re- repaint that picture, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like it's also kind of important to remember how popular toy robots were in 1985 <laughs> in America. Yeah, I mean, the the robot operating buddy Rob was basically a giant ripoff of the Omnibot 2000. Yep. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, which I, I just saw at Steve Lin's booth here at the <laughs> uh, Portland Retro Game Expo. You and didn't buy it. I didn't. It's two hundred dollars. It's not as nearly as expensive as I would have thought. But um, but yeah, like when you see it, my first thought was, "Whoa, that's a huge Rob mock-up." And then I remembered, "No, wait, no, that's the thing that Rob was ripping off, like the little <laughs> robot that rode out on silver spoons, and uh, you know, like it was just kind of this little cute robot. Johnny Five was kind of the same, cut from the same cloth. So right. so using that again, Uemura said, like no one cared about the robot about Rob in Japan. But in America, it became kind of this icon, even yeah. though he admitted no one knew how to use it. Yeah, and it's, you know, even in Japan, I think it was just another one of the toys that came mm. out of R&D, you know? Mm. Like, I, I, like they, they, they were a toy company for a long time, and I think that that, that DNA was still there, you know? I, I think Nintendo's toy maker DNA has never gone away. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's had a resurgence with, uh, you know, Amiibo. But, right. but you look at things, like, especially with the R&D one, uh, type games like WarioWare and that sort of thing. Like, 
there's always some kind of interesting gimmick. You know, yeah. Game Boy Camera, that sort of thing. There's always been this, like, fascination with gadgets yeah. running through Nintendo, and I think that really worked to their advantage with the NES launch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's there's experiments that didn't work, but they, they keep doing them, like, like the uh, the sewing machine accessory for the, the NES that uh, that appeared at, in, at a trade show in 1987 and was never heard from again, or the, uh, the heart monitor for the Wii, whatever that was called. Oh, yeah, the vitality sensor. Yeah, yeah, when's that coming? Like, like you know, that's... <laughs> That's that's part of what Nintendo does is they just like make fun toys and, and see what sticks and and I think you know their ability to do that you know contributed immensely to the success of the NES. Although you know it's I don't know how much I believe that narrative. I don't know how much I believe the narrative that people bought the NES because there was a robot. I can believe that retailers right. bought the NES. No, because I it was a robot. I think that was the idea was okay. to sneak it in as a Trojan horse to say, oh, no, this is a toy set. It's an entertainment system. That's what that's what Umari said was, um, you know, it wasn't a video game system because we had the robot. Yeah. It was an entertainment system. It was something bigger. It went beyond that. Yeah. Also, the zapper, guns, he said, you know, very popular in America, not right. so much in Japan. Um, so Duck Hunt was a huge success over here versus overseas. Um, so, yeah, like, there is this kind of visual iconography that's become a part of the NES. But something that I thought was interesting listening to him talk was that he kind of uh, put things in a different context than I realized. You know, they, they started researching, doing market research into bringing the Famicom to America early, like at the beginning of 1984, which yeah. was about half a year after the Famicom launched. And throughout 1983 and 84, the Famicom was a big flop in Japan. It wasn't a success. Sure. They started looking to America, not because they were like, let's, you know, let's take the success and go international with it, but more like, like trying we, are, yeah. we are bombing here and we have got to get some success somewhere else or this whole thing is going to be for nothing. Well, I mean, you, you probably know this, but they, they took it to Atari. Mm. Uh, so they, they took, uh, from what I understand, they took to Atari a Famicom and some demos of, of Atari games that they ported to the Famicom. It wasn't just them. It was uh, HAL. Right. Satoru Iwata ported them. Right. And those games did eventually come out for NES. They were going to be first-party published games. Yeah. There was an interesting interview with someone from HAL that just recently showed up on Gama Sutra. Yeah. And, uh, like, that whole story is really interesting. Well, like, I don't know that they all came out. Uh, three of the four did. What was the fourth one? I don't remember. There was Millipede, um, Joust, and Stargate, Defender okay. 2. Because I know uh, from talking to someone who was at Atari at the time that they brought a port of Kangaroo, which I don't think is documented anywhere. So you just got a scoop right there. <laughs> All right. That's that's the missing piece. But, yeah, anyway, so they but, took these, sure, these games yeah, the, to Atari. The point is that, that, yeah, you're right. Like, it was a failure in Japan, and and, and they were looking at uh, at America early on. Uh, I, I kind of suspect that they weren't maybe as cognizant of the... Well, there was... I mean, the crash was... The crash wasn't like a moment that happened, right? Um, so, I mean, the, the point that everyone points to is... The moment that everyone points to is uh, Warner's financials at the end of 1982 sure. because all of a sudden this billion-dollar industry was like a billion-dollar loss. Right, yeah. and but, but what people don't tend to point out is that... Uh, Again, people kept buying games. Uh, 1984 was a record year for cartridge game sales, except that they were bought for below cost. (laughs) Right, instead of selling for $20, they were selling for two. Right, so, like, it's, again, like, the appetites were there, and and it was, you know, uh, I I think 
I think Arakawa's brilliance is, is, I mean, when you talk to people at Nintendo, they all just, you know, Mr. Arakawa is the one who made this happen. Like, he's the one who believed in it. And, and that's just, from what I know, and, and God, I hope I get to talk to the guy someday, uh, you know, his belief that in, in, in things working is what got a lot of things off the ground. It's what brought RPGs to America eventually. You know, it's what, it's what made Nintendo power happen here. It's just his belief that, that the kids in Japan aren't all that different to the kids in America. So it's just a matter of marketing, right? you know? And, and I think that's what they recognize and, and that's why the NES ultimately happened is because he just knew it would work if it was done right. Let's just do it right. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something about having a really scary father-in-law that compels a man to uh, to do his best, and that, that certainly was the case for Arakawa. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, judging by game over, anyway. <laughs> well, no, everything I've heard about uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi oh, sure, is sure. Yeah, no, that no, he was sure, yeah. not, a, not a kind and gentle old man. No, no, he was, he was very stern and strict. And, and it's funny, if you read old, you know, old interviews with him, like... Uh, journalists will try to ask, like, what do you think of Miyamoto? You know, he's pretty good for your company, right? Is he important to you? And, you know, his reply would always just be, he's an employee. I pay him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, that's just the kind of guy he was. So, looking back at the NES launch, um, what do you think was the most important thing about the system when it made its debut? You know, it had that kind of slow rollout. New York, then San Francisco, then, you know, by, by the middle of 1986, basically nationwide. Yeah. Uh, like, if you could point to one thing that, and say, like, this is it. Like, this is what defined the NES. This is what made it a big deal. I'm not going to say this is what defined it, but this is what made people buy it, I think. Is, and I don't hear anyone say this ever, the graphics were much better than the systems that existed. Yeah, they really were. I mean, for me, that was that was a big part of it. Yeah. Like, you look back at those old black box games, like the sports games, baseball, tennis, like, they're very simplistic, yes, but they have a lot of detail and a yeah. lot, like, tennis, I was replaying it recently, and there is a lot of care put into a very simple game. The animation on your... Uh, your players, like, they don't have mirrored graphics. They have a dominant arm. Right. And depending on how you run around, they, you know, they reflect that in their motion. The scaling on the ball was very simple, yeah. but it was very easy to tell where the ball was relative to your players. Um, you know, baseball, little things like before you can pitch the ball, the pitcher kind of, like, turns his head and yeah. adjusts his posture. Like, stuff like that really added a lot of personality. And well, I, I think, you know, the the... Not just the the level of detail in the graphics, but also the level of personality. In right, them. and and I was about to say that like, you know, this is kind of hard to to think about now, but like, you could see the eyeball on the duck in Duck Hunt, mm-hmm. you know, and it changed expression when it got shot. Yeah, you know that that was new for home right. games anyway. I mean, I uh, this is one of those cases where. You know, you always want to be careful about giving uh, Shigeru Miyamoto too much credit and being like, he is everything to Nintendo. But, like, the art in those games was very clearly, especially Duck Hunt, 
Hogan's Alley, um, Wild Gunman, like those were characters drawn by Miyamoto. Like he had a distinct style. Yeah. And and, and yeah, I don't know that how much he actually contributed to those games versus how much his style contributed to the house style at Nintendo, right? right? But but yeah, absolutely. Like uh, you know, having a cartoonist in the office, exactly. You know, like actually putting character into the games. Yeah, that was. That was new to games, almost. You know, like, you see a little bit of that in the arcades. You look at games like Tapper. Or, uh, I think Tapper is old enough to count here, right, before all sure, that. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're like, the, the sort of midway games of that era. You know, you see some of that, but but not really uh, in, in the home. And, it just, and I don't know how much of that is just because people didn't bother because they just could not easily... Uh, you know, show character in, in, in their in their graphics. But I, you know, going back to your question, I think that's what sold the system. They, 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 it's not like they just put them in stores. Like, their test market launch was uh, people from Nintendo in front of the Nintendo showing it to people, putting it in their hands and having them play it. And, and I think people bought into it because it was a next-gen system. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was, you know, I think the Trojan horse thing ultimately was unnecessary for the buyer, uh, who I think only cared about, you know, the fact that this was a new video game system that played hot new games. And I think they learned that very quickly because uh, their, their, whatever they called it, the deluxe set, no, not the deluxe set, the one with just Mario. The games. action set? Yeah, the action set, you know, came out, uh, I think, when they launched nationally they launched with that set. So I think during the test market launch, they, they might have learned that this other junk was unnecessary mm-hmm. and they just stripped it down. Mm-hmm. So so you, you kind of talked about like what you think was the, the biggest point of selling, the biggest selling point, the biggest point of appeal in the NES. What, what is your first memory of the NES? Oh, what is my first memory of the NES? I know it was Super Mario Brothers. I think my first memory of the NES was watching a couple of uh, my cousins play the NES and uh, play Super Mario Brothers on the NES. They were playing two-player. Uh, and I don't rem- I, I, I don't specifically recall having an aha moment. Uh, I, I just recall having a ha-ha moment, uh, which was when uh, Mario was jumping and my cousin who was uh, on player two paused mid-jump just to mess with his trajectory so that when he unpaused, he would, he would fall. I think that's the earliest NES memory I have. Uh, I don't, I don't specifically remember being wowed by it, to be honest. Like, I was born with an Atari, and, and I don't know, like, the NES came out, and I was, I, I think I was too young to go, those graphics are better. I think, I think I was still young enough to, where I didn't care. I was just like, more video games, <laughs> you know? So I never had that wow moment with the NES, but, uh, you know, it was, it was always around, and, and uh, I loved it. I think being just a few years younger or older than you, yeah. um, my memories are a little more fully formed. And the NES did make a really big first impression on me. I remember, do you, did you ever uh, have federated electronic stores when you were no, a kid? No. Okay. It was basically like before there was Best Buy, before there was Circuit City, there was federated. And it was kind of the same thing, like, yeah. you know, televisions and record players. We, we had a team called Silo where I grew up. I don't know if that was... Or not Never heard of that one, but I remember walking through the Federated that was very briefly, like for one year, in in my city, and uh, like later it turned into a, a church, which is uh, kind of a weird, like turning retail space into a church. Why not sell God? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I remember walking through there, and they had sort of this computer area set up, 
And I remember seeing an Amiga and being like, wow. Yeah. Like it had just some kind of graphical demo and I was amazed. And then I walked over a couple of aisles and there was an NES set up with Kung Fu. And that impressed me even more because I guess, you know, the Amiga just seemed like one of these incredibly expensive things that we would never be able to own. But the NES, like that was something that spoke to me directly. It was like, this is a video game system. You know people with video game systems. You could own a video game system. Look how good this is. I had, you know, seen Pac-Man on Atari. We didn't have an Atari, but we, you know, I I had lots of friends who did. So I'd seen stuff like Pac-Man, which was bad. Pitfall, which was good. Yars Revenge, which was interesting and complicated. (laughs) But none of those compared to Kung Fu, which had, like, this very capably animated guy walking, punching midgets for some reason, punching guys with knives. There were, like, little Chinese lanterns that would fall and dragons would pop out of them. And it was just, it was so so colorful and vivid. I just said, I need to own this system. And, like, and a lot of that was that's the first time that you, like, recognize what those things were supposed to be instead of having to fill in the blanks, right? Right. They they didn't have that level of abstraction that yeah. in television and even ColecoVision, like, I, I had a ColecoVision. Uh, we got once the market crashed, and it was very cheap, and games for it were very cheap. I even had some Nintendo games on it. You know, Coleco had Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. Um, and, you know, it did have some pretty good-looking games, but there was still this kind of, like... There was just something about the ColecoVision that was lacking compared to the NES. It didn't seem as vivid. Yeah. It didn't seem as fast-paced. I mean, Kung Fu scrolled smoothly, which the uh, the ColecoVision did not do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you had, you had Zaxxon, and that was probably the most impressive thing on the system. Uh, but the NES just, like, immediately, it caught my attention, and yeah. uh, I knew I had to have one. It took me a couple of years to get one, but... I did eventually, eventually, uh, eventually grab one. I think scrolling is actually now that you mentioned a kind of an underrated innovation of the the technology in the NES because mm-hmm. uh, you didn't really see that. I mean, you saw it a little bit. No, not really. Like no, I was, not I was about to say, you, no, I was about to say you saw it in Pitfall. I'm like, no, no, you didn't. No, no it was one screen at a time. No, like the smooth scrolling you got on the NES was really only on the NES, and uh, I mean, granted, you didn't see too much. Uh, good use of it until you saw Super Mario Brothers, but that was a launch game here, probably. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, uh, Kung Fu scrolled horizontally, Excite Bike sure. scrolled horizontally, Ice Climber scrolled vertically. Yeah. So there was, you know, there was a fair well, amount... No, 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 ice, the, but the Ice Climber scroll wasn't fluid. No, it but... Jumpy. But, but still, like, yeah. it still, it wasn't flip screen. Yeah, it wasn't sure. going from screen to screen. Even, uh, even Urban Champion, which was garbage, yeah. had you know, scrolling. So right, it, that was, it just made it, not only do you have convincing characters, they're now inhabiting a convincing space. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, the NES, um, there was kind of the marketing appeal, but then there was also just the conceptual level of the system and the, yeah. the, the, the design of the software. And yeah. I think, I think neither of those things could exist separately. Like they had to work in tandem for the NES to be a success. To be a success here, you mean, with the, the like, with right. mixing the game quality with the marketing we had here, sure. Right, right. Yeah. And the marketing here isn't really talked about too often, but, you know, it's, like, if you look at those black box games, uh, the purpose of putting those graphics on the box, like, painting those pixels, and it is paint if you look close. Uh, yeah, Link doesn't really smile in Kid Icarus. No. <laughs> um, the purpose of doing that was because one of the, you know, when, when they when they got serious and they're like going to launch this system in the U.S., they really kind of 
uh, you know, sat down and, and came up with their list of why the industry crashed. And, and one of the factors that they identified uh, was that the games, uh, the way the games were selling themselves on systems like Atari was not based on the reality of what you got when you played it. So, you know, for example, you 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 pick up a box that's beautifully painted illustration of a guy, you know, swinging a tennis racket. But all that great airbrushing. Yeah, that was yeah. that was something I love about the Atari. But it sure. was very like Pong had nothing to do with what was actually inside the game. Right. Or like Missile Command was that guy at the weird console. So the, you know, the, the point is like they, they sold the games based arguably on a lie, right? Like they, this is the experience this game's going to give you, and and what Nintendo wanted to do. Uh, was do the complete opposite of that. So the biggest thing you see when you see a Nintendo game is what the game actually looks like. Sort of. Those sort of. those paintings were all a little more detailed than the actual graphics. Yeah, they, they, they yeah, they, Not they were. Always. Look at the baseball. Al- almost always. Those were those were the original bull shots. <laughs> Sometimes, but I'm I'm not convinced if you actually look at them. Like there, there's some, like you said, uh, Pitt and Kid Icarus. Yeah, they drew a little smile. Uh, there, there's a little more resolution, a little more detail on the the boxes, but it, it's fine. Like it got the point across. No one like I don't no, agree. Let's go back. We 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 could not um, <laughs> we could not look at emulator, emulator crispness at yeah. the time. So what we saw on the TV screens was pretty much what we saw in the boxes. No, absolutely. And, and on the TV screen, it actually looked a little better in the boxes because they're smaller. Uh, but yeah, that was, you know, that was the idea. It's, it's, it's like, let's actually sell them on the games instead of, instead of convincing them to buy us the money and, and hoping that they like it later. You know, it's just, if you look at those old boxes, even the screenshots and everything, they're just very representative of what you get. Uh, and you know that was that was brilliant on their part. It's it's a hard thing to appreciate now, but that was new at the time. You know, was actually showing what the games look like. So just to wrap it up, you know, we've talked kind of about the uh, the launch and everything, but what is it about the NES and uh, sort of like the system beyond launch that you think has managed to become so enduring? I mean, it's it's shockingly popular. Thirty years later, like the prices yeah. on old NES games have skyrocketed in recent years it's it's kind of crazy it's weird it's like at the time i think everyone remembers that uh the word uh nintendo meant video game you know any video game was nintendo like even if it wasn't right and and in a weird way that's almost persisted because i think when people think video game they tend to think of super mario brothers right they, they tend to think of 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 a d-pad and they, they, they think of pixel graphics, like I think, and, and like cartridges, right? I, I think that's still the stereotypical video game, and uh, I think a lot of that has to do with Nintendo's, you know, complete dominance of the market that didn't exist otherwise, you know. And 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 in a weird way, I think they're, I think they defined modern video games by being you know, the only player in town. And yes, I know the Atari and the Sega Master System came out at the same time. <laughs> like, no one cares. Uh, but I, I think that by defining what video games were, uh, they, they kind of, you know, put a stake in the ground. And, and, I, and I think that in uh, a lot of ways, people just think of Nintendo as where games as we know them started. So I think, I think the NES is still seen as the foundation of the way we play video games now. And, and I would not argue that fact. I think a lot of the genres we still play 
um, you know, ultimately, uh, well, not uh, not all of them, but a lot of them uh, had their sort of prototypical birth in that era and on that system. Uh, and I think a lot of the ways we we play games now, you know, should be attributed to to the success of the NES, and I think that's why it still stands up. Yeah, it's funny that you mention uh, how Nintendo became synonymous with the video games because before that, you played Atari. Yeah. Like Atari was the word for video games, but you know when they they kind of languished, and Nintendo took that. And there's never been a gap in continuity in Nintendo public, you know, right. consoles and games. Like they never went away. Right. Like, maybe that's maybe that's the why they've managed to be so dominant. No, absolutely. And I, and I do think, you know, I, I do think since we're talking about collector prices, I, I do think that's the main contributing factor to that is that Nintendo never went away. Nintendo, like, Nintendo's still marketing the franchises that are on the NES. Uh, so, you know, that's a big, big factor in, in why uh, it's, it's continued to be collected and, and sought after uh, for whatever that's worth. All right, thanks, Frank. Yeah, thank you. So I'm here on the... 30th anniversary of the NES with Gary Butterfield of Watch Out for Fireballs. Gary? Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? Uh, not bad. Thanks for coming out to our little shindig, our Retronaut shindig. Uh, so yeah, like I said, today is the 30th anniversary of the NES's launch in America. Uh, we've, not we, but other people have pinpointed it to October 18th, 1985 was the U.S. launch, uh, the test launch in New York City of the NES. Um, are you actually 30 years old? Or are you old enough to to potentially even remember this happening? I'm 35, so oh. I'm a little bit older than that even. Okay, you're an old person like me. I am. I am, absolutely. I, I commiserate on the podcast listening whenever you talk about being an old person. All right. Yeah. Good man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I remember growing up, we had an Atari for a long time uh, in my family, and uh we lived in a, a trailer park, actually, and the kids who uh, watched us got a Nintendo before we did, and that's how I got to play Mario Brothers the, for the first time. Um, a little probably like probably 1986, uh, you know, so afterwards. And I didn't actually get my own NES for a couple years after that, but uh, it was it was really amazing, and I'm sure I was an intolerable kid because I wanted something really badly, and a kid who wants something is usually. <laughs> Yeah, pretty difficult to get along with. Yeah. Yeah, my, my brother and I actually saved up money from a few Christmases and birthdays and whatever to uh, buy an NES. We went in together on it. Then my brother ended up not liking video games that much, so it pretty much became my NES, even though he paid for half of it. But, uh, yeah, I, I got into it right at the peak of the popularity of the system uh, when it really started to take off, and I want to say it was the end of 1987. Um, like, I'd played it before that at friends' houses, and finally I had enough money to buy it. But the problem was I couldn't buy one because it was sold out all across the country. And my father ended up taking a road trip for some reason, I can't remember exactly why, to Michigan. Uh, and I lived in Texas at the time. And he came back from Michigan with the NES that we wanted. So that was pretty rad, but like it was nowhere to be found where I lived. 
Yeah, I don't know about any kind of shortage. Uh, at the time, my parents were buying things, so I just wanted it and was in, insufferable. And then one day on Christmas, um, you know, came home and <laughs> came home. I was out that day for work for Christmas <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> you were delivering gifts and yeah, I came home from bed. It was a weird house setup, and uh, uh, but you know, ended up having it, and it was an amazing Christmas because I had this stratum of games. I had uh, Super Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, which is really good, and then I had Mega Man Two. So it was shortly after Mega Man 2 was very new at the time I got my NES. So that would be 1989. Yeah, 1989 is when I finally got my own. Um, I'd seen it before. And then the third game was Operation Wolf. So there was this stratum of quality. Uh, and uh, even then, I remember just, you know, one half of this is a good NES game, and this is one that I'm not as interested in shooting these uh, strangers in the jungle. Yeah, Operation Wolf is a weird NES game because it's actually a lot more fun if you don't use the zapper, even though it is a light gun game. If you just use the controller, it's so much easier and more enjoyable. Yeah, I, I did not know that at the time. I used the zapper exclusively because I had the entire... I didn't have the, the set that came with, with the Rob, but, you know, it, it came with the zapper. And I don't, I don't think they were selling Rob by that point anymore. 1989, so... Yeah, by that point, the, the system had gone national. And when it went national in 1986, they pretty much dropped Rob. Like, the original set was the deluxe set that came with Rob and the Zapper uh, and Gyromite and Duck Hunt. But then, you know, it went national and they went with the action set, which was just Super Mario Brothers, and it was a much better deal. That's the one we got, and it was much more enjoyable. But, like, they never made any more Rob games after 1984, basically. Um, so I don't I don't know if they continued selling Rob. He, he kind of did his job, which was convince retailers like, oh, we should buy this entertainment system that takes game packs. It's not a video game at all. I like saying Rob did his job because it sounds like you're trying to get him reelected uh, for, <laughs> for something. Reelect Mayor Robot Operating Buddy. Progress is his middle name. Oh, he'll build all the pillars in the city. The uh, I wasn't sure because I had a friend who had Rob. The same friend who had the NES got Rob. I don't know. The, when, when he got them. But I remember playing Gyromite as a kid uh, as a two-player competitive game, uh, which was really fun. And one of the great injustices is how the uh, the first-level Gyromite music is not lauded for how good it is. Like a, Man, all those, all those uh, early NES games, uh, you know, once you got past, like, the very early sports games, had really good music. It was just, like, these little simple catchy loops by... Uh, uh, I think it was mostly Koji Kondo and uh, Hip Tanaka. I think uh, I think Rob uh, Jeremiah was uh, hip Tanaka, and he just he did such great little like jingles. Yeah, and, and he contributed to killing all of those turkeys, which like I was in favor of because they've got those waddles and it's gross. <laughs> those, those those things actually have a name. I can't remember what they're called, but it's it's some stupid name. Do you mean like they have like a Christian name? Like each individual one is a is a murder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. I know Jeremy. I feel bad enough. All right. <laughs> it was, yeah, Rob, Rob is actually kind of like Operation Wolf in that if you use the peripheral the game is ostensibly designed for, it's not nearly, nearly as much fun as just playing with controllers. Mm. Yeah, and it ends up becoming, uh, it was really interesting because it's asynchronous co-op because one person is controlling the pillars and one person's controlling uh, your little doctor. So it reminded me a little bit of, I mean, there are more recent examples, but when you play um, Super Mario Galaxy and you have one person gathering the stars for you and kind of helping out in the periphery, um, it's really neat. Like, that's a, it was a really cool way to play a game, and it's the first time I remember doing that. Yeah, but Rob was, like, complicated and weird. I just bought a Rob for the first time, and I haven't tried it out yet. I'm going to try it out soon. But I really don't get like the idea there it was it was honestly i mean i, I was just at a a, a lecture uh where the designer of the nes 
said, like, no one actually understood Rob. And I think he was talking internally at Nintendo. Yeah. No, I, I, I didn't understand Rob either. I met with the controller with that. I have a Rob, but for aesthetic purposes, it might as well be a Rob-shaped statue. Oh, you should just get the Amiibo. It's much cheaper. Yeah, well, now I know that. Now, now I could do that. Too late now. As a, as a subspace emissary super fan, it, I couldn't resist. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, we were talking about um, your uh, your early video games. You had Operation Wolf and Mega Man Two and so forth. Yeah, yeah, and and for a long time it was just rentals, and uh, that was when my rentals were in the hands of my parents. So uh, I would, you know, be sitting at home, and I'd be like, I love Mega Man, Mega Man's really great, and think that uh, my mom might come home with Mega Man, I would get, like, Magmax. And that's a very different experience, even though <laughs> on the surface they look... with M.M. Yeah, so, I mean, you can't really blame her, and she was also doing me a kindness, but again, that didn't stop me from being insufferable about playing Mad Max. Magmax. Actually, I, I was just reading about Mad Max, and it seems really interesting. It's like... They tried to do sort of an open-worldy kind of action game, like the predecessor of modern Mad Max, but I don't know how well well it actually worked out. I, I actually, I, I might have been my mushmouth might have got in the way. Mag Max. Oh, Mag Max. Well, see, that's very confusing because there was Mag Max and then there was Mad Max, yeah. and they were also very different games. Yeah. I don't know anything about Mag Max. It was like a kind of an isometric arcade platformer where Is you're it? like a flying ship and then you turn into a walking robot if you collect all the parts? It was a ship where you were you were a robot that had component parts, but it was a shooter, if I recall. So you went to the, the right end. As you got more powerful, the game was harder because you had a bigger hitbox. So it's easiest when you're just the ship. Okay. So if you wanted to be generous, you could say there was a cool risk-reward element going on. <laughs> Mostly it was just like clunky design. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of, a lot, it was risk-risk. It was. It was not. It was not that. I'm no not that reward. generous. Yeah. No rewards. Not rewarding. No yeah. rewards worth this. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah. So. So as a uh, as a an old person who used to own an NES, like, to what do you ascribe the the continued sustained popularity of the NES? I mean, it's it's crazy. Like, I, I would say the system is more popular now than ever, except you know at the the peak of its uh, sales in the, the into the 80s, early 90s. Like, games are crazy expensive and. Nostalgia is in all kind of all kinds of all kinds of nostalgia just blowing up all over the place. Yeah, I, um, part of it is always when um, a generation who grew up with something has more purchasing power. That's always going to be a thing that that drives demand. Uh, I didn't think millennials had purchasing power. <laughs> Some of them apparently do. Yeah, or I mean, we we would if we didn't spend all of our money on NES games. Man, we're 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 doing something wrong if some millennials have money. I hate us. <laughs> Somebody do a think piece about this. The um, yeah, I I mean the, the library just holds up really well. We had um we talked to a guy at the expo this weekend who was doing an interview and he's like, if a kid wanted to get into retro games, like what would you start them with with old games? And I couldn't think of a better answer than like first party Nintendo stuff from the end of the NES, right? Like the the Kirby, Mario 3, those things are just uh, so amazing and they don't confuse um, simplicity with accessibility. Um, you know, they're not simple, they're just accessible. And that's a word that gets a bad rap for no reason. Um, so a lot of the games have that quality that's just really, really special. They have complexity, but they're not complicated. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. And and as you get older, the, it just kind of uh, layers and layers because if you start looking for weirder kind of hidden gems, they're there. And uh, a lot of my favorite games are ones I accidentally stumbled upon as a kid, like a lot of the adventure games that are on the NES and things like that that are like not always the best version of those games, uh, but they were just so strange and ill-suited to the system. And now as an adult, I can go back and be like, oh, like... 
there's a King's Quest for NES, and it's really weird. It's really terrible, but it's really weird, and I can appreciate that on a different level. It's not just uh, how good it is, not qualitative. It's also just uh, unusualness is really important. Yeah, the, the, the crazy thing about the NES is that even though it's so well covered and so talked about, there's still all these like crazy deep cuts that even I'm only just learning about. Like, I really want to play the Felix the Cat game now because it looks... It's really good. It looks so much like, you know, kind of a Kirby Hal-style game. It's developed by Hudson, but clearly they've gotten a lot better since Mickey Mouse Capade. Yeah, that game's really good. Like, we've we've covered it for a show, and it was suggested for our Bad Games podcast, and we played it and both realized at the same time, like, this is no way bad. This is a great game. Um, yeah, there, there are tons of little gems like that. We also, we just recently played Monster Party, which has a reputation for being super weird, but it's actually really good, too. Like, really interesting. It's not perfect, but it's really interesting, and there's so much of that. Uh, you know, I feel like you could play, you know, keep discovering new NES games and make it a project, you know, every day for several years and just come away with so much gold. Um, Okay, well, I think that's uh, actually my only questions. I can't think of anything else. What else is there to say about NES? We've exhausted uh, it all. Wonderful music. And then that's just an aesthetic Sometimes. thing. Sometimes. So I feel like a lot of the time. Like, it's an aesthetic thing, whether you, you like that kind of soundscape or that sound palette. But if you do, like, I've, just, I've recently I've been just kind of consistently knocked back by how good the music is. Even real weird minimal things, like uh, the other day, in, in my head, the dungeon music from Dragon Warrior 1, and how, like, just atmospheric and scary it was to me as a kid exploring these dungeons of the dark you don't know when your torch is going to go out you know things like that uh so if you like that kind of if you can tolerate those blips and bloops like i think most of that first system is very good all right thanks gary thanks gary here at uh, the Ground Control Arcade with Steve Lynn, who actually has never been on Retronauts, but that seems like a huge oversight. Yeah. You Tell know, us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so Steve Lynn, a uh, big collector for a long time, probably never threw anything, everything away. And um, just once I started going out into the real world as an adult, I started collecting in earnest and Built up a pretty huge collection, NES, Super Nintendo, uh, N64, and a bunch of other But, sites. I mean, you're not just a collector. Like, no. you have... I have a job. Like, you're not just, like, a guy who wants to buy a lot of games. Like, right. you really take the time to find uh, sort of the ephemera around games, like the, the, the documentation and the marketing materials and things like that. Like, you... I, w- I would love to just, like, pick through your, your archive sometime, like... I know, it's got to be amazing. Uh, yeah, I think what happened was uh, during my quest to finish these systems, I met a lot more people and everybody knew I collected. And that sort of expanded the uh, sphere of influence, I guess. And so people started bringing stranger and stranger things my way. And as collecting just whatever's been released got uh, less interesting, I started moving on to collecting things like, I think one of my most exciting things was the um, black box games from the Nintendo versus Magnavox court case. Uh, so they're black box games, but they have a sticker on it that says Nintendo v Magnavox 
uh, court case number, whatever, and they're all signed. And so it's a set of black boxes. That's amazing. So it's like just, you know, retail games, but they were specifically used as evidence in the court or what? Yeah, so Magnavox, uh, the legal team, had purchased them and submitted them as evidence. And along with that came uh, paperwork, which is Ralph Baer's handwritten uh, deposition on how Nintendo is infringing on Sanders Associates' patents. Um, and they're all dated and, you know, all handwritten notes, and he just did a schematic. They sent him an NES. He broke it apart and said, like, okay, here's where all the patents that they're infringing on. And that was used. These are all used in the case. That's a, that's a court case that's never really talked about. Like, everyone talks about the Universal versus Nintendo case because, like, you know, it, it's, it's good press. Nintendo uh, basically cleaned the floor with Universal and said, uh, actually, guys, it's not a problem. And you acquired the license to Donkey Kong or King Kong, like from from the public domain, but right. um, yeah, the Magnavox uh, the Magnavox case is less less known, I think. Yeah, it was uh, all about cartridges, basically. You know, can can you? Uh, well, that was one of the main thrusts. Is you know, the, the Odyssey one um, had interchangeable cartridges. There's a lot of things just I think related to video display and a few other things. Um, and so it was it was a big deal. You know, if Nintendo had to pay a royalty on all of these things moving forward. That would have really changed. I think how they pushed out in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the, that's really interesting. And then I had met with um, people who had been in Nintendo for a very long time. And, you know, they've told me stories. I have weird things like the script for demonstrating Rob uh, during this launch, actually. Uh, so they would have usually, um, you know, Howard Phillips standing next to Rob and demonstrating how amazing Rob was playing Gyromite. Uh, and if you read, look at the script, there's handwritten notes saying, like, don't do this because then Rob will stop responding just in case it was someone who wasn't familiar on how to do it. Oh, cool. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I have a feeling you're going to be on Retronauts a lot in the future. We're going we're gonna to drag you in. Oh, I, I would love to. I love the show, and uh, it's, you know, whenever I listen to it, sometimes there's people who have this very specific set of skills, I guess, this knowledge about games that's unbelievable, and I think I have some of that in, in some areas, but uh, it's, it's always entertaining to hear about what people have really uh, kind of jumped into and made their passion. But yeah, we are, we're here, you know, um, kind of on the, the actual 30th anniversary of the NES's launch in the U.S., um, I don't know who exactly figured out that it was October 18th, 1985. Was that Frank Cifaldi? Or yeah. Was... I, I think we're, we're going to go with Frank Cifaldi on this one. He's the one that's done the most research in ter- terms By of finding far. yeah, like ads and you know, trade magazines, any press coverage. I think he has that first review of Super Mario Brothers from those two women who ran a newsletter just trying to track down exactly which date. And I guess we could look at what day. Uh, you know, this day was in 1985, uh, just to figure out, does that make sense that they would do it on a Tuesday or whatever it is? But I mean, given the amount of work he's put into it, and uh, it just seems to be kind of like, now this is the accepted thing, October 18th, 1985. Yeah. So here we are, 30 years later, uh, which is kind of crazy. Um, I actually, you know, I wasn't in New York at the time, so I didn't experience the NES until probably a year later. But uh, it sounds like my understanding is that you actually did have some familiarity with the system, like an encounter with it right around the, right around the time of the launch. Uh, yeah, so I had actually seen the Famicom um, before the NES had launched. And so... You were just a little kid at the time, though, right? I was a kid, but uh, my uh, family was in Taiwan, and we had uh, relatives okay. in Japan. And mm. so we had visited them, I think, the year prior, so 1984, and I had seen the system, uh, and of course I didn't know who Nintendo was. Well, I knew Nintendo Game & Watch, I guess. Uh, and we're like, wow, this is great. And I had played Super Mario Brothers and a few other games. Uh, and then when I had heard, this is some of this was Playground, but then I, I 
this is going to be a strange thing, but my parents encouraged me to examine the companies that I found interesting because someday I might want to invest in them. Um, and so this is when I'm eight, nine years old. It's, hey, here's this company, Activision. The there. Right, you know, Activision, you know, this is how they make money. And, um, you know, is this something that you're going to want to invest in when you grow older? So I was following things like CES news, mm-hmm. uh, like casually, and then saying, like, hey, there's this new game system from Nintendo. I was like, is that, isn't that the system we played in, in Taiwan? And, you know, it wasn't available where, where I grew up in Ohio, uh, but it was in early 86. Um, so that's when I was first exposed to the NES, and that was the deluxe set. So what was your experience there? Uh, with the NES, was uh, I started looking for the games that we had played uh, when we were in Taiwan. So uh, Super Mario Brothers, fortunately, was very recognizable, but a lot of them I had only known the Chinese or Japanese name, and so we were kind of looking at the back, like, oh, is that the one you played? And then there was uh, things that, you know, obviously we had never been exposed to, so it was still a lot of the shot in the dark, like, okay, this game looks good, Urban Champion, this guy's fighting on the cover, oh, this must I'm be so awesome. sorry. Yeah, that was a, that was a real disappointing, uh, <laughs> like, I, I, I was thinking it would, for some reason, be like, um, no, not, like, ER kung fu type, you know, it's like maybe there's more jumping or something like that, and just no, it wasn't that. Yeah, that was more like the kung fu game, actually. Yeah. Irem's Kung Fu Master, which was based on a Jackie Chan movie, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, in Japan it was called Spartan X, and it was based on um, a Jackie Chan movie. If you look at the Japanese box art, it's like a cartoon version of Jackie Chan. Oh, wow. But in the US, they just completely skipped over all that, they just called it Kung Fu. Um, it was Kung Fu Master in the U.S. in the arcade. Right. Yeah. I think also in Europe it was Kung Fu Master. But okay. on NES it was just Kung Fu. Like, right. they just yep. cut right to the chase. But, yep. yeah, like, so that was, that was probably more what you were expecting. Yeah. I, 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 look, was... I, I was talking to Frank Cifaldi yesterday, and earlier in this uh, episode, actually, mm-hmm. uh, mentioned the fact that uh, the first exposure I had to the NES was Kung Fu. Yeah, maybe if, you know, my first exposure had been Urban Champion, I would have been like... Well, okay, Maybe I'll not. stick with ColecoVision. Yeah, so I had a ColecoVision as well, uh, and so that that was sort of the game system. And we had uh, a computer, so uh, for me this was like much like the more... Like Coleco Atom or a separate computer? Oh, no, we had a separate uh, PC because uh, my father did uh, economic forecasting, so we always had okay. the fastest computer with the worst video card because mm. uh, he just <laughs> needed the processor. Uh, and so I was like, we have to get a VGA card. This is years later, but... Um, Bit, you know what I tried to do when when we first saw the NES, we knew what it was because we had played it. The one thing that was confusing was the totally different color scheme and you know the cartridges and everything like that. So I think that was uh, probably the most confusing. We're like, is this the same thing? It's the same company. And then once we'd played Mario, we're like, oh yeah, this is the same thing. For uh, we actually did try to have our cousins send us some games. Um, not realizing that we weren't able to play right. them in the NES, different pin configuration, mm-hmm. and we're like, wait. Those were smaller, and then I think we actually had a, a game stuck inside the NES, oh. or like shaking it to try to get out. Yeah. Like maybe there's a way to get this out. So, yeah. Yeah, actually, um, at the uh, Masayuki Uemura presentation at NYU a few days ago, he said like uh, you know, like we designed the uh, the NES cartridges to be more like VHS cartridges, specifically because we came up with that top loading design to kind of 
trick um, retailers into saying, oh, this isn't a video game system, it's an entertainment system. Right. So, like, they had to make the game cartridges bigger because Famicom cartridges were so tiny, they were, like, half the size, they would get stuck inside that top loader or, like, someone reaching in would accidentally touch the pins or something. Oh, yeah. So it was, like, a deliberate design decision to make the cartridges bigger in the U.S. Our big American so, hands just, like, yeah, pulling it's, it's Right. It, it's funny, though, that you, like, actually have experienced this thing he was talking about firsthand. Right. Well, I, you know, we're young, and our, our cousin's like, hey, here's the game. And, like, okay, well, if we push it deep enough, it'll fit, right? And not, we didn't do things like compare the size <laughs> right, of the pins sure. or anything. We're like, right. okay, this must work in there. And then, like, trying to rattle this machine to, to get it out. Um, but it's interesting you bring up the design change, because I do have the uh, AVS brochure, which was that oh, CES yeah, yeah. Uh, brochure where, where it is That's probably the, top the most order. interesting facet of, like, the pre-launch NES aspect, like the fact that they they had this like entirely different system in mind that they presented to the public and said like, hey, here's this console we're going to do, and everyone kind of said, eh, I don't know, it's kind of like the Coleco Adam, we don't really care. Yeah, and what's really interesting is like in that brochure, there's like the keyboard attachment, mm-hmm. uh, the musical keyboard attachment, and then they call the uh, the zapper like a light wand because it actually you know kind of looked like a lightsaber with the back that sort of twisted down. Um, And it's like, okay, well, there's this light one. Yeah, wireless controllers, all kinds of really strange things. Um, Yeah, just, you know, one year later from that CES brochure, they actually were pushing out the NES. So that's a... That's not a very long time to do a pretty radical redesign of the system. Yeah, the the AVS, like the the brochures that I've seen and everything, like that looked way more kind of like the 80s vision of futuristic than uh, the NES, which was much more kind of grounded in the actual, uh, you know, home appliances of the era. Yeah, it kind of, the way I put it, sometimes it almost looked like a one of those remote controls from the future, even if you look at the D-pad, right? It's not a D-pad, it's that square-looking thing. Um, and square buttons, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like the square button Famicom. So right. they, they really and, the, you know, the square D-pad is something that Sega actually went with with the, with the Master System. Yeah, in fact, it looks like a silver uh, square D-pad, right? So, I, I, obviously, I never saw that brochure, and I only obtained it maybe two years ago. Um, but reading through that, you can see how they were trying to position the NESs. Hey, this isn't like that video game stuff that crashed, you know, a couple of years ago, trying to wipe away memories. This is right. a whole family entertainment system that's been meant to compete with this new computer revolution that we're entering. So, yeah. So the um, the keyboard attachment you said it's a musical keyboard. So it's not the same as like the Famicom basic uh, keyboard. It's a different kind of keyboard altogether. Yeah, it's actually a, a piano keyboard. Um, so, but it's not the miracle keyboard. No, it's not. It's much smaller. I, I don't think I've actually counted the number of keys on it. But they're like, look forward to this, you know, musical, you know, creation software and things like that, which mm-hmm. is really strange. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that they did experiment with this entirely different take, not just a different design of the NES through the AVS, but like a different philosophy of release. I mean, it really was, you know. In, in Japan, you had the, the Famicom, which was short for Family Computer, and they really did treat it like a computer. You had, like, initially, you know, I mean, the first two years you had the Famicom basic system, so you could program on the Famicom with a keyboard, and there was, like, a, a, a cassette. cassette. Yeah. Yeah, there was, like, the data system, or the data, Famicom data, was it called data system? I think so. It was, so. like, a, a, a tape cassette, and mm-hmm. you could use it to record, like, you know, level designs, custom tracks, and excite bike or Loadrunner even, like there was third-party support for it. Um, And they looked at bringing most of that to the U.S., I think, but for whatever reason, they eventually just decided, 
no, just make a game console with a robot. Yeah, I think well, it was probably pushing towards the toy. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's really where we bought a lot of our video games, right? Yeah. It was like toy retailers. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to be on the shelves of you know, Kitty City or Children's Palace or Toys R Us, you really had to say, like, what is this thing? And you know, over, at the time, like, at my booth uh, at Retro Gaming Expo, uh, I had a lot of the Tomi Omni bots. And everybody was just taking pictures oh, man, and everything. I, I love that. Like, I, I saw your booth without realizing it was your booth as I was kind of making my rounds initially yesterday. And I saw the uh, Omnibot 2000 that you had just out on display. And I was like, whoa, that's like a huge mock-up of, oh, no, it's the Omnibot. Yeah, and I think they were really... Uh, that. Like there, there's a reaction that everybody had as soon as they saw the Omnibot, and they want to take pictures with it. And like, I remember seeing that in like the Sears catalog or the Wish Book. And I think didn't Rob, they didn't they have one of those in Silver Spoons, the TV show? Uh, it was like serving drinks and stuff. Yeah, to yeah. The I kids. think Silver Spoons, and everybody compared it to the uh, Polly's robot in Rocky. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind of reminded them of that era. And I think you know, Rob really sort of pushed those buttons for a lot of people. It's like, look at this robot that looks at the TV and plays a game with me. Um, it doesn't really matter if it works or not it's just one of those cool things that you want mm-hmm. in your house it's like I want the system with the robot you know no other system has a robot unless right. it's like Axel on Andy or something like that <laughs> so so in your mind what is the most interesting thing about the original NES launch like the you know let's say the the initial test period from October 1985 through summer 1986 when it finally hit national distribution what's like to you, what really stands out of all the things you've read and seen and experienced yourself firsthand? Well, I think for Nintendo it was a huge risk, um, and they pretty much had all their eggs in this basket. And just to see how much traction they were able to get with no advertising, um, you know, a lot of this you know, obviously local market advertising we're seeing in magazines and things like that. But you know, if you think about like what a console launch looks like now versus what something looked like in 1985. You know, when the Atari 5200 was being announced, I knew that that system was coming out. They were advertising like the new Atari and here's all the games and there's in-store displays and things like that. With Nintendo, it was almost like a slow burn, right? It's like, hey, we're starting in New York. Hey, let's expand to LA. And then gradually sort of that word of mouth starts to get out. It's like, wait a minute, there's this like new game system and look at these graphics, right? And, and maybe you're catching it in uh, a magazine that's reviewing stereos or something like that, or, you know, you, all you see is the belly, or maybe not that, like, you know, you're going through the clearance bin and then you start seeing, like, maybe there's something coming up, right? And I think, the, like, playground gossip, you know, my, my cousin in New York has this thing that's amazing, and during that really short period, during that period of time, um, they were able to support a nationwide launch, and, you know, 86, just things took off almost right as soon as they, you know, went national. Yeah, to me, uh, like, you know, it's all kind of vague because I didn't realize, like, oh, this is a big new thing. Yeah, my, my family bought a ColecoVision, a Coleco Atom, after the, uh, the, you know, the console market crash. Mm-hmm. So it was super cheap. But, like, to me, video games at that point, like, when I was shopping for games, they were either something you had to buy in a catalog because no one had them, or you had to dig through this, like, remainder bin, like a, you know, a convenience store or something, like a, a five and dime. There would just be this big pile of games. All of a sudden, the, the Nintendo, the NES came along, and all of a sudden, games were back behind the counter. They were There was, like, a row, you know, rows and rows of them, and you could, like, look at, you know, a dozen, 15, 20 games that you could buy, and they were all way out of my price range as a 10-year-old, but, like, it was, it, it did kind of strike me as, like, oh, video games, like, they're a thing again. 
Yeah, I think you. I never stopped playing console games because we also had a ColecoVision and a 2600. And so the crash for me was amazing because all these games are a <laughs> right. dollar and I'm just right, like, yeah. hey, my allowance, I got my five games. This is great. Um, and I, yeah, I would, I would, uh, there was like a, a catalog where you could buy ColecoVision or Coleco Adam games. It was like $10 a peach, which, which was a lot for me at the time, right. but not nearly as much as the 30 they wanted for Nintendo games. Um, and, you know, like to me, that was amazing because I could get Donkey Kong or Donkey Kong Jr. And they came in these boxes that were shaped like arcade consoles. Yeah, they had, yeah, they had the arcade. It was great. Yeah, I was like, like yeah. But, but there was, like, this sea change when NES came along. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, the Coleco had all those Exidy titles, which I had never seen. It's like, Venture, yeah, okay, the, there's an arcade machine on there. It must be out in arcades. It's not mine, right? Or looping or something like that. Um, but, yeah, for I was buying a bunch of games. We were playing some things on PC. And I think what really struck me, and this has only struck me years later, was I was buying games for, you know, $1, $5, uh, whatever, in these clearance bins. And then the NES came out, and when we got that... I thought I, I could see the quality difference. And I think Nintendo's strategy of obviously limiting the number of titles that could come out was extremely successful because I had been burned by a lot of terrible games. Fortunately, it only cost me a dollar. But, you know, during 81, 82, people were spending, you know, $30, $40 on those things. And so for us, it was like, it was worth it. Like, yes, I could buy 30, 2,600 games for the price of one, well, urban champion. But uh, in this case... <laughs> that was the exception. Yeah, the exception, right? And, and I think what also helped really... Uh, soon after was the rental market exploded, mm -hmm. right? So we were able to just sample things for the same price as, you know, like a, a 27. And if we really liked it, we could buy it. Uh, and I know that Nintendo had uh, fought the video rental market as well, but I really think that's what helped um, make it less risky for people to buy into the Nintendo. It's like, okay, before I spend $40, my kid can play it, and if he likes it, we'll buy it for Christmas. So th those two things, I think, go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um... I think what else I want to say. Um, yeah, for me, like, I didn't really get into NES until a few years after it had launched and really kind of, kind of gone nationwide because I had to save up for it. But it was definitely, like, once I saw, you know, that demo of Kung Fu, it was always... It was always kind of, like, on my mind, like, Nintendo was a thing. And, you know, I knew Nintendo games before that because I had played, you know, Donkey Kong from back in the day, and I had played Punch-Out, and I saw that in the arcades, and it was just the coolest-looking game. It had two screens. Yeah, Punch-Out. And it was just, like, these giant cartoon characters. So, like, even, you know, like the... Like the the, the arcade equivalent of the Love Tester. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, like, I had seen Nintendo's name all over the arcades. I had played Popeye. I didn't think it was that great, but, like, it was a cool-looking game that looked like Popeye. So Nintendo had some cachet with me already, and then the system came along, and I was like, okay, Nintendo, this is a thing. So, yeah, it was, like, this, this object I coveted for a long time until I could finally get it. And, uh... You know, I think all of that kind of, like, added up to help build my affection for the system. But, you know, in the end, it was like, I bought the system, and then there were all these great games to play, and I spent so much time playing them. Like, you know, it, it wasn't just hype. It was actually it delivered. Yeah, I think one of the, the moments for me, I think, that was really important was when I bought Mega Man. Um, so I bought Mega Man 1 with a ton of money from mowing lawns and everything else. <laughs> and even though that cover 
Yeah, everybody, the really infamous cover. Mm-hmm. I looked at the back and like, wow, this kind of looks, you know, like a Japanese game or something you know, that, that we were playing in, in Asia. And I bought it, and I loved Mega Man One. I, I I told everybody on the playground about it. It's like you have to play this game, and then come over and like this game is amazing. It's like, and why is the cover so terrible? Uh, <laughs> but it, I I think the the NES was one of those systems that uh, because we we had this uh, prior experience. Like my family knew that this is a game system that is also big in Asia, unlike like the Atari or ColecoVision. Uh, and like, okay, they're, they're still making games and there's a lot of games, so we'll buy this one because we don't think there's going to be a crash. Um, we were able to invest in it early, uh, but I still had to buy games myself. And I basically walked around my neighborhood asking anybody who needed their you know, walkway shoveled or lawn mowed just to, to raise enough money to try out you know, some of these new games. And for me, I think that's the thing. Like, I had to put in a lot of uh, like sort of blood, sweat, and tears. Mm-hmm. And if a game was bad, well, usually we tried to rent it first, uh, but sometimes you just had to take that shot in the dark. And it's just, for me growing up, if I wasn't uh, eating, sleeping, um, or at school, I was probably either you know playing Nintendo or, or mowing lawns. And, and you know, that's why I love it so much. And you know, when I was looking to collect every single game in the system, there was an element of, I'm fulfilling the 10, 12-year-old dream, right? Like, when I was a kid... Of finally owning Jeopardy 25th Anniversary Edition. Yes, yeah, you know, Wheel of Fortune featuring Vanna White. You know, I, I just needed that. I, well, for me, it was... Uh, and that's also the reason I collect uh, Complete in Box, is because, you know, you mentioned you went into the store and you saw those things behind the counter, like, video games are back. That was the thing. You know, World of Nintendo, when they started that store display, I wanted my room to look like World of Nintendo. I was like, can we get, like, black like you know, steel mesh or something and put it on the walls and, like, red signage? And um, that, that was something you know, that I grew up with. Uh, and I wanted that store look. Uh, now, once it actually happened, I'm like, okay, that's probably not what I should have gone for. But uh, it was really interesting at the time. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally have that same affection for the boxes. Like, I was one of those rare kids who uh, actually kept his NES boxes and kept his games in the boxes, and they fit perfectly in shoe boxes. Yeah, like you would put them in and line them up, then you just pop the the lid open and take the game out. Uh, and to me, that was, you know, part of it was like there was this great packaging around it and you could look inside and there was a manual. I don't get people who throw stuff away. Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I, I had the same reaction. Uh, you know, when, when I was uh, a little kid, I had my ColecoVision and Atari boxes. And when I got out of Atari, I was like, where did you get this box? Like, oh, I just never threw it away. So this is the one I actually got for Christmas. Yeah, for me, like every video game that I bought in the NES era was hard-earned with the same, like the same way as you. It was yeah. like going around mowing lawns and painting my grandparents' house or whatever, like just doing all this kind of hard labor to earn enough money to like buy a $40 video game. So I treated them as precious. You know, I had friends who just had like dozens of games. Their parents just bought them games all the time. They'd chuck the boxes and the manuals and they would just have like a line of cartridges. It's like, uh, I don't know. It's like, it's, I'll borrow these from you. That's great. But I feel like you're missing something here. Yeah. I, the, the NES, I think, especially for, you know, folks around our age, it, it's, um, when it launched, I think we had had some experience with video games, right? We had played games in the arcade. We had seen the first boom, and so we knew how awesome arcades could be, or how, how awesome games could be. And uh, Nintendo was like that validation. You know, when you started seeing you know, the TV, like Nintendo, the hottest gift of the of Christmas season, it's like yes, we were, we never left. 
I think. Um, and I, I'm really glad that you know they got to where they were. Yeah, there's a lot of business practices that were really aggressive, um, but I also think it resulted, at least in the beginning, in um, really making the market where it is today. Uh, you know, with, without that level of control, I think we could have spun into just another crash right away. Yeah, I mean, uh, Nintendo almost dealt with that in Japan. Yeah. Like, initially, there was no control over the licensees, and... You know, there there's some magazine uh, articles that have been translated from, like, 1986 or so where people are just like, oh, yeah, the Famicom is just full of garbage. And you never really had that here. I mean, yeah, there were lots of bad games released in America, but it wasn't the majority of the market. Right. It really felt like, especially, you know, in the early years, like, it was good games. You had to really kind of go out of your way to find something that was complete trash. Yeah, and I, the other thing is, like, you couldn't have people putting out pirated carts, right? Like you said, I mean, Atari, anybody could pretty much make a cartridge. In fact, I had, we had friends that had uh, an, a gutted Atari cartridge with a zip socket, right? Just like hot glued on top and they were pirating our ta- or, uh, Atari games like in 81, 82. Wow. Um, so we didn't see that with the Nintendo. So you had to buy sort of until, you know, Color Gene, Tenga and everything else. Um, but, you know, that early on stage, uh, it's, it was one of those things like, once you started, I guess the disk system introduced a lot of piracy in Japan, um, and then obviously, you know, all those Taiwanese, Chinese uh, carts that are amazing today because of their unbelievable, terrible artwork. Um, but, yeah, that's sort of a kitsch collection. I love that people are pirating those old pirate games. There was someone at uh, the Retro Game Expo today who had a, like, fake copy of Super Mario. <laughs> And, like, it, it was done up like a black box game. But, oh, wow. But the actual artwork was, like, this really low-resolution, blurry screenshot of Super Mario, which was, you know, uh, I think most people kind of cite that as the first uh, pirated, like, unlicensed NES game, or Famicom game. Right. It was, like, the first kind of uh, illegal... Uh, it was, like, a hack of Super Mario Brothers, but with, a, uh, like, a girl as the lead character, and there was kind of, like, a, some sort of... I wouldn't say pornographic, but kind of racy sexiness. content. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's kind of become its own thing. Like, the original Super Mario sells for, like, $800 or something in Japan. So, so like, there's there's even a market. Like, the, the NES is a big enough thing that there is a market for bootleg bootlegs. Yeah, bootleg bootlegs, and uh, even some of the early homebrews, like uh, Garage Cart, right? Mm-hmm. It has that... The games aren't very good, but that cart sells for you know two thousand dollars because wow. it was the first NES homebrew, right? Mm-hmm. And something like oh, wow, this kind of kicked off this whole revolution, uh, you know, revolution of all these homebrew games. Um, it's interesting on the pirated thing. One thing I remember was looking through our classified ad section. This is in Ohio, mm-hmm. and one was like, I think it said like one hundred fifty-two game Nintendo games uh, for two ninety-nine, right? And so Mike child brain is doing the math and like oh that's two dollars a game i could keep the games i won and just sell off the rest and then like that's the greatest deal of all time and of course the number you call and you call it's like oh what are the games and listing off some of the games obviously this is those like multi-carts and um then they then they drop the bomb that it's all on one cartridge and you're like no oh i can't spend three hundred dollars that's like I, I, who does that right so uh but yeah it got got really excited and uh i think that one thing that uh, that happened with the NES that I had not seen with Atari and, and ColecoVision was um, people really trying to share a lot of secrets in the games. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mm-hmm. playground talk wasn't just what's your score; 
it was more like the oh my cousin saw Zelda in Metroid if you go through the right series of doors and things like that and so it it, it fostered more a collaboration mm-hmm. um, than just like straight score competition yeah that was that was totally my mornings in junior high school was sitting around before school started and like trying to figure out how to get through the lost woods in Zelda or like people telling me about these crazy secrets they found in Castlevania or you know like who even knows it was probably like a glitch or something but but like that was what we talked about and it really was this kind of like community thing where it was about discovery and about sharing and about um, exploring these worlds together even though we weren't playing together in the same space. Yeah, we had one guy uh, when, yeah, this is in junior high, he actually had was the first person to get and finish uh, Legend of Zelda. And he had drawn maps on graph paper mm-hmm. uh, on how to get through some Yeah, I always world. do that too, yeah. And he was uh, using the school's <laughs> photocopier to sell copies of his wow. maps. Wow. Uh, I, I think I there thought were, of that. Yeah, it was like, I think like Man. 50 cents, which was like half of your lunch money. So you'd basically skip lunch or something to uh, to get the Zelda map. I didn't buy it because I, I was like, I want to play through it. But definitely there was kids like buying his Zelda maps. I, I, I don't know if he's like working for one of the strategy guide companies nowadays. <laughs> like found, found his calling early on. So with all this said, like um, what do you think is the future of the NES? I mean, it's 30 years old, but people like... In, in some ways, it's more popular now than it's ever been. Where, where do you think it goes from here? Uh, I think it really depends on what Nintendo decides to do with the the games and, and, the, and the property, right? I, you can see them um, pulling on some of the nostalgia threads to bring things back. I think Mario Maker has really brought... Um, mm has really helped, I think, not only just Nintendo now in terms of finances, but also people remembering, wow, you know, these games were fantastic, and designing a level is really hard. Um, it, it's, it, uh, I, I think it, there's a new found appreciation for what Nintendo would put out, because even trying to make something like a cohesive level um, is very difficult. You know, people are doing those troll levels mm. and, like, autoplays. Um, so for the NES, it's what can they do to have to continue to allow people to play that library, right? You know, here at Retro Gaming Expo, we have, you can buy an NES or like a Retron 5 or something and plug in a cartridge. Um, I really wish there were a service kind of like Netflix, right? Where you can, you know, download a game and, you know, play it for a little bit uh, and, and sort of, it doesn't make sense financially. I know why they're not doing that, like a subscription service, uh, but you know, having people's earliest experiences with some of these levels, um, I think there's always going to be a, uh, a warm place in people's heart uh, for the NES. Um, if Nintendo keeps it as part of our consciousness um, with things like Mario Maker or you know like Zelda Dungeon Creator or whatever they want to do, um, I think that you know, it's going to be here. It's always going to be for us. It's always going to be there. I think for kids, they're going to identify with uh, Mario with the characters, not necessarily the system. So, all right, thanks, Steve. Cool. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks.
So finally, we'll wrap up this episode by bringing in the other host. How exciting. Finally here. Hello, everybody. Thanks Coming for- to you live from an Airbnb. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Bob, or joining me, I guess. Okay. Uh, maybe I'm Legion. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so, yeah, we're kind of wrapping up the NES 30th anniversary celebration, Hootenanny. Uh, and it occurs to me that I don't really know what kind of history you personally have with the NES. That's something I've talked about a lot. I think a lot of people on the show have talked about, but I don't know that you've ever just like said, you know, here's where I discovered the NES. I mean, was it even that big a deal for you? I think I talked about it on the Super Mario Brothers episode a little bit where I had a 2600 in my house and uh, it was like this thing I would tinker with, but you know, Mario changed my life. I played it and was like, "This this is what I do now. But um, it was actually, like, it's kind of dark, my history with the NES. And I, I was thinking about this when I was, in the, I was, when I was just uh, hanging out this morning, and I was like, the NES could have, like, saved my childhood, I think. Because, um, how do I say this? Well, my mom left a very abusive uh, husband. Not to get too serious on this episode of Retronauts. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to wonder if this was a good topic. No, no, I want to I, I I talk about this. Um, I'm not going to give any details or anything like that, but uh, we lived with my grandma for a while. And it was kind of rough because it was like a new school, a new place, a new setting, uh, new people. And I believe my grandma was the one who got me the Nintendo because, like, they wanted me to be able to fit in with kids and everything like that. So I think, like, that helped a lot because I don't remember ever being that sad or um, traumatized or anything like that. I just always had something to do and something to play, and we all played Nintendo together. And um, I uh, talk- so, so when you say it could have saved your childhood, what you mean is like it may have saved your childhood. Yeah, it, it could be. Responsible. It wasn't a, like if only I had an NES. Yeah. It could be responsible, but um, and I and I've talked about this a few times before, but like, if you're a little kid and your mom is dating other guys, um, you immediately dislike them or you're immediately suspicious. But um, my 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 current stepdad, who's been my stepdad for I don't know twenty five years now, um, or twenty years, I don't know, wait, twenty five, yeah, uh. The first thing my mom told me about him was that he played Nintendo. And he is a huge nerd, and he still is. But that was immediately, like, the bargaining chip that was uh, that made me immediately accept him. So, like, I think that, like, Nintendo helped me not have a bad childhood uh, in, a, in a not super serious way. But, like, it helped me uh, adjust to a new life, and it helped me adjust to a new dad. So, um, yeah. So that's, that's my super dark past with the NES. That's actually not that dark. It's actually yeah. kind of kind of, I don't know if uplifting, but at least uh, it, 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 it makes a case for video games not being entirely detrimental to human uh, happiness and development. Yeah, and my mom, uh, to her credit, was never dismissive of video games. She played them with me up to a point, and uh, she always supported everything I do with them. So, yeah, like, I just have nothing. I mean, maybe that's why I'm so attached to Nintendo, because it's like I do associate it with that rough time and getting through it, but, um, yeah, that's basically my past in terms of, like, where I found it, but the Mario episode has, like, the, like, not emotional side of it, like, the, like, where it clicked in my brain, but this is more, like, where it fit into my life, Mm -hmm. and I do find it interesting that you're not that much older than me, but, um, you're seven years older than me, I think. That's pretty old. Well, but the thing is, like, I, I think it's pretty interesting that we both were as obsessed with the same thing, but... I was eight and you were a teenager. So I don't know. I just found that interesting. Like that, that brought up an appeal for something, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the Nintendo was the chance I finally had to own a video game system. 
Um, it was one of those things that we didn't have the money for growing up. So I, you know, we would get like remnant leftover systems, you know, circa 1983, my father came home with a, a dedicated Pong system. So, you know, mm-hmm. not really at the cutting edge. Uh, there was one time he brought home some like uh, self-contained Atari computer. It was like a modular uh, console with a membrane keyboard, but we couldn't get it to work. It would just like we tried to boot it up and it would come on and give us a prompt, but we couldn't get that's, anything to run on it. That's why the market crashed. So yeah, so you know, eventually we did get a ColecoVision after the market crashed, and it was really cheap. But it always, you know, there was kind of this sense of like, well, this is dead because to buy games I had to buy them from a catalog uh, like a mail order catalog Jeez. so uh, it's like you're buying seeds or something it, yeah it was it was uh, it was kind of like post-apocalyptic <laughs> so um, so the Nintendo you know was like my chance to finally be sort of with it and uh, all my friends played video games you know they all had Nintendos except the one weird guy who had the master system you don't talk about him no it was fine he, he tried to show off the snail game as if that was something amazing like my console has a, a, a snail maze built into it I bet okay. if you if you talk to him 10 years later he'd show you the snake game on his phone <laughs> uh, I don't know about that but, uh, yeah, I'd go over to his house and, and play some of the cool stuff that was on Master System that the NES didn't have but otherwise it was like a communal thing like uh, me and my friends my friends and I all would hang out and you know share a video game chat uh, tips and, and oh, yeah. concepts and swap games back and forth and so on that was part of it for me too like Everybody was obsessed with Nintendo, boys, girls. Like, I was in a club, as you are when you're a kid. You just form your own little clubs. It wasn't a street gang or anything, but we if we were doing this for years. We would just design our own Nintendo games, and what it would be would just be, like, drawings of what we wanted them to be. But we we, we took it very seriously. Like, we would just sit down and just crank out these, these like, um, these, these ideas for games. I can't remember any of them, but I knew we did it for years, and I wish I held on to some of those things. But, like, we were all obsessed. And, yeah... It was a magical time to be alive. So something I've been uh, talking to all the different guests on this episode about is, you know, the actual launch of the NES, the test launch in, in New York City 30 years ago, um, or, you know, maybe after that, like, the as, as the system became, uh, you know, available nationally. Like, what was the point at which you became aware of the NES? I think... I have vague memories of... Well, of course I knew what an Atari was, because we had that. I, it seemed to always be there. But um, I, I was at some relative's house, and it, and it was watching people play Kung Fu, I think. That was the first time I saw an NES. I was like, this is different. Like, the things look like things, not just like random shapes that mm. scare me sometimes. So it must have been like 86 or 87. I, I was probably like four years old, so the memories are kind of foggy. But right. then I knew what it was, and that's when... Um, you could not really avoid Nintendo stuff around, like, 87, 88. That's when it was started showing up with, like, Nintendo Power and magazines, and I started meeting kids that had it. So that's where it really found me, hmm. like, just a few years after the soft launch. So in a sense, Nintendo has been a home console factor for as long as you can remember, like, literally. Yeah, it's like, um, it, it could be kind of insidious how, the, how it's wormed its way into my life, and you can, you can kind of... Um, the whole Nintendo Power thing was a little questionable, even if it was fun. But I sometimes I question if my attachment to Nintendo is like um, honest or it's something that they did to me. But uh, I can still I still can say I love the games regardless. But just my obsession that continues today, um, I don't know. 
I think Nintendo did a pretty good job of, you know, like, social engineering in terms of marketing, but I don't think they actually, like, implanted you know, chips into our minds or anything like that. It wasn't they that, had enough chip shortages as it was. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't as, as, like, insidious as, like, Happy Meals, where it's like, we're going to teach you to love our food by giving you toys. But, um, I don't know. I, I guess they, they, they just made it more legitimate for kids because it's like, oh, there are books about these things, and these are ways for us to talk about these things, so... And, like, just spreading information before the internet was really hard to do. So, like, I remember uh, I had the Pack Watch Guide, which was, like, here's a list of every Nintendo game. And I grew up with a single mom for a long time, so, like, I didn't get that many video games. So, of course, when I, I was told about this, this future stepdad and his love for Nintendo, the first thing I did when I got to his house was he had, like, all of these games I'd never seen before. So, like, just having read about them in Nintendo Power, I was ready. I was like, oh, I've heard about this, and I wanted to play them all. So, mm. yeah. And that's where I found Jaws. <laughs> Jaws? Yeah. Oh, oh, I played oh, a lot yeah, of Jaws. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Uh, we did an episode about it, so. Yeah, that, that's one of those um, kind of, like, games that was probably better than it should have been. Yeah. There was a lot of that on, on Nintendo, uh, on NES. It's like an RPG with one town and three enemies. Mm. Basically, that's what it is, but they didn't get much further than that. So it's a good first chapter to what could have been like a weird Jaws RPG. Well, it was developed by Atlas. That is true, so, yeah. Uh, it's that and uh, Friday the 13th also. Yeah. Um, I want to see them return to the Jaws RPG. Maybe they could do a Persona <laughs> crossover. I, I mean, Etrian Odyssey 3 was kind of the Jaws RPG. Really? Oh, yeah, because yeah, you have a ship, yeah. yeah. I got it. Yeah, yeah, and the first boss like disappears beneath the water, and the mm. it's like a crawfish or something. But no, it's a catfish. That's what it was. They're going a giant back to catfish. the roots. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but it's a totally insubstantial connection that means nothing whatsoever. But it's fun <laughs> to find patterns where none exist. Um, but I will say that uh, for all the Nintendo stuff I was obsessed with, um, I had one chance to rent the Wizard, and my mom rented something else, and I'm glad I never saw the Wizard because it could have ruined my uh, Nintendo love. I don't think I would have enjoyed it. Even if you got the secret of the warp whistle in Super Mario Brothers 3? Uh, you know what? I probably would have known about that ahead of time. This is, this is These were the video days. I don't even think like seeing it in a theater was an option for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Are there any uh, like unfulfilled wishes or ambitions you have when it comes to NES games, like things you wish you had done that you haven't gotten around to doing yet? Oh, jeez. Um... I'd like to finish Zelda 2 one day in my life, but every time I try, it's very disheartening. But there are kind and smart people out there who are doing ROM hacks of notoriously hard games, and I am going to now play through Fester's Quest, or at least try, because oh, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a new, uh, well, new, uh, well, this is going out soon, but somebody hacked it so that it basically uh, cuts out a few of the really unfair design choices. Yeah, your bullets can pass through walls now. Yeah, and I think like getting hit once doesn't take away all of your power-ups you've obtained up to that point, because that's what it did. Like, you would slowly, gradually upgrade your gun, but one hit, you'd be back to your little pea shooter. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting case. I don't know if you've ever read the interview with the uh, American producer of the game. No. But it was kind of this early attempt at East-West collaboration. There was, you know, there was a real divide between Japanese, American, European developers back in the day, and you would have, like, Rare, who was kind of ubiquitous uh, on... Uh, on on NES as developers, but, you know, they worked in their little studio in Tweecross, and that's what they did. They made games for people. Um, you didn't really see a lot of collaboration, but uh, but Fester's Quest was actually an attempt by American Sunsoft employees to work with Japanese Sunsoft employees. Oh, wow, okay. And so the, the concept of the game, the design, even the fact that they were like, let's make a game about an Adams, char- Adams Family character, that was all... Uh, 
the result of the American team, like all their ideas. Mm. And then they would come up with these documents and send them over to the Japan team, and the Japan team would execute and turn them into video games. And a lot of the problems with the game have to do with the fact that communication uh, on an international scale was so slow back then uh. that they didn't really have time to fine-tune it. So things like the lack of checkpoints and the punishing difficulty, like they just didn't have time to playtest the game. So because of that, uh, that lack of communication, the, the slow communication between the two teams, that's why that game is not very good. So I kind of feel like a hack of that game is actually in the spirit of the game because it's, yeah. it's like it wasn't quite finished when it was released. So I guess that is, that is what I want to do now. I can't think of anything else, but like Fester's Quest always intrigued me as a kid because I just would hit a wall in that first sewer, and the game is like eight times bigger than that. So it's just like, what else is in this game? Like, it, it, se- it, se- it seems so huge at the time, but I'm it, sure. It doesn't have continues, does it? It doesn't, no. Yeah, when you die, you go back to the very... Okay, yeah, that's another problem, too. So I don't know if they hacked that part out, but I think maybe with the other changes, you don't need that part hacked out. But um, I, I'm looking forward to more people doing more things like that to make these like nearly impossible games playable. Like, impossible games with promise, not just like bad games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You haven't ever uh, played Zelda 2 with save states or, like, you know, on Virtual Console? I did, but the Virtual Console I played it on was the Wii one, and uh, it, it didn't have save yeah. states. It had some weird half-step that never really worked, so it maybe... It was just a suspend feature. Yeah, so maybe if it's on, like... Is it on 3DS? Mm-hmm. It's on everything. Okay. Maybe it's I'll try a, it that it's way. It's playable then. that way, yeah. yeah. I, I beat it the proper way back in the day, but I don't have that kind of patience and long-suffering sensi- uh, sensibility these days, so yeah. I-, I replayed it uh, with save states, and it's well, much more tolerable that my, way. My biggest problem, and I wrote an article about it for your website like eight or nine years ago, <laughs> was uh, about how much work they make you do if you die, like how far they throw you back, where it's mm-hmm. like, you're not learning anything, they're just, they're just punishing you by making you do things again. So if I could just do like a little cheat save, like, okay, I'm going to save at the start of the dungeon, and I can always go back to this. I don't want to be, like, saving every five seconds. I want to make, like, an honest, like, if I was designing the game now, here's where I would put a save point, and I would just do it like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about the NES is that it was kind of this, uh, like, this learning phase of video games. You went from very simple arcade games, single screens and that sort of thing, like, very simple score objectives to much more complex and elaborate concepts. The NES wasn't the only system that was happening on, but it definitely was the most popular and most successful and most published for. So you did have a lot of people, including Nintendo, figuring out what works and what what, what doesn't. And, you know, there's there's a lot of differences between the Japanese version of Zelda 2 and the American version. Mm-hmm. They, they made a lot of refinements and changed the way the experience system works and... Uh, changed the like some of the sprites and uh, other things that didn't have to do with the the change of platforms. It was just like they made the game better as as they kind of went along. And you, you still see that sort of thing like with uh, you know Square Enix's RPGs where they release like the Japanese version and then the refined American version and then they re-release that in Japan as a kind of double dip. Um, that that sort of evolutionary process was something that I think you really first saw on NES. Mm-hmm. So it really was kind of this uh, formative, uh, transitional, and also uh, evolutionary uh, platform. There's also some other things I would like to do, but I can't think of two, like like there are a ton of translations I need to play. Like they just there's so many coming out that no one even thinks about because that scene is kind of much smaller than it used to be. But I really want to play through Sweet Home uh, at some point because um, it seems like a really cool idea that I need to just sit down and have the patience to try it out. So. 
That's that's the Resident Evil predecessor, basically. If mm-hmm. you guys haven't heard of it, and so, someone just told me they bought a copy today. And I was like, oh, I need to play that. Yeah, I think for me, I'm I'm kind of interested right now in um, exploring the Famicom disc system and kind of like seeing these other versions of games that I know really well. Like I know some of the obvious ones. Yeah, the the difference in music and Zelda, or the fact that Castlevania and Section Z have save uh, save slots, and so they're much easier in in Japan. But there's just like this entire sort of subcategory of NES games that's very, very obscure. And mm. I'm sure most Famicom Disk System games are not very good. Uh, the ones Square Enix published under the Disk Operating Group label were so bad that it almost put the company out of business, and probably deservedly so. Yeah. But I feel like there are a lot of a lot of interesting gems out there to be explored. It's like 170 games, so there's that's a lot. there's a pretty big library to pick from. And I also want to play Portopia. All three oh, yeah. of them. Has that been that's been fan translated? Yeah, I don't know if I don't. It's like a trilogy. I, I I know the first one has been, but I don't know about the other two. But I I think I mean even if it is super primitive, I just want to see where this genre came from. And you know, they, there were three games on on Famicom on this uh, system, I believe. Whatever whatever uh, platform it came out on, it was like a, it was a trilogy that he did before Dragon Quest. Oh, yeah. Huh. I knew there was the there were like a, a two part Famicom Tante uh, club, but that's that's a different, different. Yeah. That's, like, that's like Nintendo is taking the idea on their own. But uh, then there are remakes of those for Super Famicom that I want to play. That's a different story. <laughs> so. Yeah, we can get to our uh, unfulfilled Super Famicom Super NES wishes when we get to that anniversary. Yeah, that's coming up. All right, um, so I guess that is it for this episode. A lot of people talking about NES games. Not that we haven't before, but uh, I think this particular facet of the, the system's history is interesting and relevant. So I uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. And we'll be back next week with a micro episode. In the meantime, you can find us at usgamer.net, at retronauts.com. You can find us on social media. And, of course, you can support uh, podcasts like this where we're sitting in a room talking into an iPhone, which is very expensive, very complicated. We need your help making episodes like this through Patreon. So check out patreon.com slash retronauts, and uh, we'll send you free stuff after a few months. It's pretty cool. We're great guys. Uh, so thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon. Mm-hmm.